1: This isn't, I believe, a question of right versus left. It's right versus wrong. And this is so blatantly obvious that I feel a duty to express myself. This is just wrong, right? I mean, the level of discrimination and the antipathy with which we've largely non-responded to this growing problem. There's been these touch points recently that have exacerbated it that I think it warrants speaking out and, and I will be speaking out. Like, this is not an issue you can just... Sweep under the table or just support quietly. I'm Terry Kawaja.
0: Welcome to Modern Minorities.
2: This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different.
0: I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City.
2: And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee.
0: Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world.
2: It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority.
0: This is a show about all of you for all of us.
2: Talking to Terry Kawaja, founder and CEO of Luma Partners, a strategic advisory firm focused on the intersection of media, marketing, and technology. Basically, he's a really cool investment banker who's really opinionated. And if you haven't heard of him or heard him, just go look him up on YouTube. Terry's amazing.
0: He was so amazing. He had such great energy. He told some really great stories. My favorite was his childhood story about how he walked up to people and asked them for change. And after some amount of time of asking a certain number of people, he ended up with six bucks. (laughs) I'm like, that totally explains how you ended up doing the things that you do today as an investment banker.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And without giving it away. Terry is not what you expect him to be. With a name like Kawaja, you might expect one thing and you will discover a very different thing about him.
0: Yeah, we talked a lot about that. I think that I almost feel like his name gives him a perspective on life that he wouldn't have otherwise, right? Because he's probably been in situations where, I mean, he definitely has, he's told us about it, but to be in situations where people expect you to be, whether it's Asian, Japanese, whatever you hear or think when you see that name and then have someone show up who isn't that automatically kind of gives you a sense of what it's like to be a minority in the world.
2: He's a really authentic person, and he's a bit of a personality in the quote unquote industry that we both kind of inhabit. People know who he is. So you kind of already know, but you just don't know where he's from. You know, we talked a little bit about what's going on today, because that's something, honestly, I'm starting to use this show to just kind of, I don't have the answer. So maybe I can talk it through with, these, with you, Sharon, yeah. and with our guests. Yeah. But like one thing I love that he said is that this isn't an issue of right versus left. This is an issue of right versus wrong. And I was like, wow, I wish progressives could get their marketing mojo together like that because it was just it was brilliant.
0: I really love what he's been doing in his industry to address any of these disparities or discrepancies as well as you know any any advice that he could give people and he had this great story about how he was assembling a panel one day and was really looking for more diversity on the panel in terms of gender diversity. And rather than having women just talk to other women about how to get ahead in finance, he curated a panel of both men and women sort of leading that discussion and being advisors and thought leaders on the topic. And I think approaching diversity in that perspective of not putting the minority in a position to only talk to other minorities about how to be a better minority in a majority situation and rather showing and not telling just really powerful way of thinking and a really innovative way way of approaching a challenge like that.
2: Terry did a, another really interesting thing in the spirit of show, don't tell. And he created a Black Loom Escape. And for those of you that don't know what a Loomescape is, you've probably seen one if you're in the marketing industry. It's this map of businesses and different categories of how advertisers reach customers or what the latest DTC brands are. And when we were talking to Terry in the height of the protests after the murder of George Floyd, we were all trying to figure out how to use our powers for good beyond just donating or protesting. As soon as we hit stop on the recording, I mentioned to Terry, I'd just seen this episode of Trigger Warning on Netflix where Killer Mike decides to only support Black businesses. And the idea is, Terry, you've got a platform. And can you articulate what the black businesses are in different sectors? And it's been really cool seeing how team at Luma Partners went and did their research and made this thing that's being covered in the Wall Street Journal and Adweek and say what you will about what he's done. What I respect is that he's using the platform that he has to do something in his unique voice. And I think that's something all of us could do.
0: I think the impact of this is that people can now literally have a go to guide of as I make decisions for me. Or advertising, where are we going to put our dollars, and how are we going to support the Black community? And they have this roadmap now because of Terry.
2: You should definitely check it out. And there's lots of other sites and things you can look at to find these things. But if you're wondering, how do I support Black-owned businesses? One of the many sources now is the Black LumaScape. So head over to Luma Partners or Google Black LumaScape, and you can find it. Yeah. So uh, enjoy our chat with our pal Terry. Terry. Thanks for joining us on the pod. Great to be with you, Roman. Uh, so, Terry, you're kind of infamous <laughs> in, in parts the infamous. of uh, Ooh, the <laughs> industry.
1: But I like that. I like that. That's better than famous. Right? I, I
2: never want to be famous. I want to be rich, not famous, Terry. No, but, you know, you're a known person who always has a point of view on things in the industry and even things out of the industry. And before we get into some of that... I think our guests want to learn a little bit more about you before you were infamous.
1: So can can you tell us a story of something from your childhood? Sure. Well, one could describe that I, I grew up a middle child and always was trying to sort of put on a show or get some attention of some kind. I've described myself as a banker for over 30 years, but a comedian for over 50. So that's clearly been, I have a lot more tenure in that regard. And, you know, even as a kid, I'd be putting on shows and I had a level of, I guess, what's best described as chutzpah amongst my family. There was one time very early, I was probably six years old when I attended a wedding of my aunt and here I was, you know, dressed to the nines. I think I was the ring bearer. Highly disappointed when I when I realized that the rings that I was carrying on the pillow were sewn in. Those were fake. And the real ones were in the pocket of my, my uncle. But yeah, I got it. I was a six-year-old. So late, later that night, there was lots of entertainment back at the house, a big party. And I was given a, a toy. It was a toy gun at the time. Probably not terribly politically correct, perhaps in 2020, but this was 1968. So it was a very, very different time. And I'm I'm upstairs where the washroom was and and men were, people were coming in and out of the washroom and I decided to hold them up just for fun. I was just doing it as as a joke. I'm like, stick them up. And one person pulled out of their pocket a bunch of change. And this is back in 1968 when people actually carried change. And I remember grabbing this guy's change, put it in my pocket, saying, thanks, and on he went. And I proceeded to do that with numerous people. They found it funny, right? Little six-year-old kid handing off their change. I ended up with $6.67 that night, which in at the time seemed like more money than God. So I don't know why I told you that story or, or what the moral of that story is. Maybe crime pays, but just kidding. But I found that there was, I don't know, a reward to being an extrovert. And so I think that just reinforced my extroverted nature. And I've tried to apply that. In every aspect of my life, in business, in school, and it's been a net positive. I'd say
0: that's pretty impressive. Six dollars from some change, huh?
1: <laughs> I know, I know, right? <laughs> I, I was, I was persistent. I, I, stayed at it. Right? I, I found success with the first one, so I kept going.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that probably paved the way to your, to your investment profession. Now, I see. I, I
1: knew that was coming. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll own that. I'll own that. No, I just take initiative. Hopefully, not the part of uh, crime. But you know, look. The, it's a entertainment factor, right? And I still apply that today. Like if I'm speaking at a conference, you mentioned at the outset, Raman, about the fact that I, I have opinions. And I do because I believe I was basically born without a filter and, and never acquired one. And, and that can be tricky in business, can get you in trouble. But it, I think in the long run, it's a net positive because it just breeds authenticity and hopefully... It's not an unfiltered opinion that's not too wacky and that hopefully you can you can add some value. But I have found that to be disarming and long-term useful and valuable.
2: Something I heard in my startup days, I don't know if it was from an investor, a board member, a, a co-founder, but was a statement. I, and I really like it. It's strong opinions, weakly held. And I'm always going to be intellectually honest with what I believe and pretty passionate and willing to share it with you, Terry or Sharon or anyone who's listening. But if you share with me a counterpoint, I want to talk about it. I want to learn because I don't think I know all the answers, (laughs) but I will share what I know, you know, and it's always like that approach. And and I
1: I completely subscribe to that perspective. Yes.
2: So Terry, I got to ask, this is a question we like to ask all of our guests and you got a funny name, Terry. So where are you from?
1: (laughs) So I was born in Quebec, Canada and grew up from age nine on in Toronto. So so between Quebec and and Toronto. So I'm Canadian, 100%. Oh, man. I've now joined the club here in the US about, about 10 or 11 years ago. So I'm, I'm a dual citizen, but my heart is, you know, I'm Canadian at birth, and and I think I could best describe my heart as being Canadian. And that, by the way, The reason why you know that is when issues like whether it's gun control or more recently, some of the strife that's happened here in the U.S., it just that just makes it patently clear where you're sort of allegiant and not allegiances, because I am allegiant to the United States. My country that I chose to be a citizen of, I'm fervently patriotic, but on certain issues, I just feel like Canada gets it right m- more often than than not, and so my Canadian patriotism sort of tends to come to the fore. But yes, the name Kawaja is Lebanese. So if I trace my origins and ethnicities of of my ancestors, I'm roughly speaking three quarters Scottish, with. Grandparents were McDonald, McDonald, McCormick, and Kawaja. So I'm approximately <laughs> three quarters Scottish, one quarter Lebanese, which I might add is just, I've, I've concluded is just about the right mix because it's enough that I don't have hair all down my back, but I don't get sunburnt. I have this sort of olive hue to my skin, so I tan well in the sun. So there you go. And by the way, with a combination of Lebanese and Scottish, I was destined to be a banker because those two <laughs> nationalities are well known for their sort of middleman middle tendencies.
2: Well, the first time I heard of you or I saw you speak at an event, I was like, oh, Japanese guy. And you've told me that that has happened many times because of your name.
1: Yes. To the uninitiated, to everyone except Japanese, <laughs> it sounds, it sounds <laughs> Japanese. People have expected a Japanese. But that used to be more so in the, in the past. But I will tell you that it has created a sort of like a funny... Sort of situation where clearly one can tell, and this is with sort of pattern recognition after a number number of times, that there is this mismatch between the expectation of who I am based on my written last name and then when I show up in person, which I have found to be fascinating.
2: Well, you, you said you had a couple funny stories about that in your early career, right?
1: Yeah, I kind of describe it as my experience with reverse racism, if, if you will, if there's a term to put on it. But essentially, in law school, I did law and business together. And I was a pretty good student. I had very high marks. I had lots of extracurricular. In other words, I had a, a resume that was pretty strong. And so if I applied for a job at a law firm, for example, in very provincial White wasp with a hint of Jewish Toronto in the 1980s. If I applied, I was likely going to get an interview on the strength of my resume. That being said, I would show up. And again, after pattern recognition, a dozen times, you can sort of figure out what's going on. Here's what would play out Someone would walk into the waiting room, look around, kind of confused, and then announce Terrence Kawaja? You know, look at like Who, who's Terrence Gordian, and then when a white, clean-cut male in a suit and tie, properly dressed and everything, would stand up and say, "That's me," they'd have a reaction, and everyone would have roughly the same reaction. And I, again, pattern recognition. After a while, would realized. It was the look of relief. Here they were going, Kawaja, like expecting, I don't know, what were they were expecting? A turban of some kind or Because it is a, a popular Pakistani name and there's many Pakistanis in Canada. And so they would say, Kawaja, and I would say it up and they go, Oh, oh, you're Terence Kawaja. Well, welcome. Come on in. And, you know, the first few, I didn't really recognize. And then after a while, you're like, hey, wait a second. I mean, I know you're not discriminating against me, but you were fully prepared to or something like that. I don't know. There was a funny feeling about that disconnect.
2: It's kind of the cards are on the table of what their expectations were, right?
1: Yeah. Well, here's the thing. It wasn't intentional. It was, sure. yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was just a bias. natural and unconscious reaction. And sometimes it would be expressed like, oh, but just almost always you would see the the face change, right? The eyebrows raised, maybe a smile comes to her face. It was the undeniable look of relief. Damn. Yeah,
2: I think we're all a little bit, this is gonna sound terrible, but I think everyone, no one is innocent. We are all a little bit racist. And in current times that we live in, I think it's just kind of, it's unconscious sometimes. And it's just the more you can be conscious of it, you, you can't correct something if you're not conscious of it. And yeah.
1: I really wish there was... A gradiated sort of term for racist in the sense that it's loaded. You're right. When you see a horrific scene where a white supremacist is espousing the most vile hatred towards a minority, as we've seen, unfortunately, numerous times recently in this country, I mean, everyone looks at that and goes, wow, racist right yet, right the same word is used to describe sort of much more subtle unconscious biases yeah around race which i mean one of the things that i think we've we've gotten wrong in this country of late is it's either black or it's white it's on or it's off the dichotomy we go to extremes it's a spectrum yet, it's a spectrum it's absolutely a spectrum. yeah i experienced that in the opposite way so I took my
0: husband's name when we got married. And so his last name is Tony. My maiden name is Lee. So when I was Sharon Lee my whole life, it was very obvious, right? You'd see the name on paper. I would show up as as a Chinese American woman, totally same expectation. And now I've noticed the same thing. Like I'll meet people. So before everything went to video calls, I would talk to people on the phone, a Sharon, Tony, they would see my name on paper, Sharon, Tony, and then I'd show up in person. And it was the opposite of you, Terry. It was like, what? (laughs) Tony as a last name, probably doesn't, unless you're from the Caribbean, it's super obvious what that is. But otherwise you sort of just assume it's maybe a white person, maybe it's something else, but you certainly don't expect an Asian person to show up with that last name. And um, it's just, it's like the complete opposite of that. So I do wonder, I mean, it's hard to know, but I wonder if there are opportunities that maybe not that you missed out on, but where, like, maybe you were looked
2: over because you're... We, an- we all change our last name to Chad Hemingsworth third. Right, exactly. We all get jobs.
1: I <laughs> so I will tell you, I forgot about this, but that just brought it back. I've never mentioned this before. There was a period of time, I believe it was in the early 80s, when I contemplated changing my name. Really? <laughs> yes. And, and it, again, I think a, a function of the time and place, Toronto was is a wonderful city now, very cosmopolitan, very international. Certainly wasn't the case in the 70s. Dominated by the sort of the waspy sort of enclaves. It was very much a a city run by a a small group of people and very provincial. And I looked at the definition of Kawaja means master. So I was going to change my name to Terence Masters, and I—I I found I did some research on it, and it turns out many of the Kawajas that emigrated to the United States did just that. So there are many people named Masters that is basically just the anglicized version of Kawaja, and they did so for just to you know stave off any potential prejudice or, or discrimination that may occur purely on the basis of their of their last name.
2: I noticed something, one of my last projects at p and I was doing a lot of work with China, and I'd done a lot of work with India as well. But in China, people take on an anglicized first name to work with you. And I'd be like, no, I w- really want to try to pronounce right. your name. I'm like, no, 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 don't bother. My name is Wendy. And I'm like, no, 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 what's your name? And they'd say something and I would struggle with it. But to me, the struggle was getting it right and learning, right? To yeah. pronounce the Chinese name. But I noticed that, and Sharon, I don't know if, if you've observed this with Chinese, Chinese family members or Chinese American family members, but the changing of the first name or the anglicized first name that you give people. And my my uncle even, late uncle, his name was Dave. He worked at Georgia Tech and he changed his name to Dave. Like, yeah. and, and we went to his funeral and everyone knew him as Dave, not yeah. as Paul Dave. I just thought that was interesting.
0: I did encounter that a lot growing up because I so many of my childhood friends were from Chinatown with originally born with phonetically spelt Chinese names. And they would always change it to something completely like, it was like Tiffany or yeah. <laughs> It's a good one like becky just kind of the most mainstream i hate to say like white american type names it wasn't even like your name would have event like maybe it was originally like Xu Ming, and then that becomes like sheila but something that sounds the same it was complete it was always something very very
1: different from like a television show so i definitely had a couple of friends like that yeah i will i will say that again it's a function of the the time But when I interviewed on Wall Street in New York, which was a departure, I hardly spent time in the the U.S., but my view was if I'm going to do mergers and acquisitions, why not do it on the global stage as opposed to the local stage? So I wanted to move to New York. My experience was that, again, in the late 80s, there was far greater racial diversity on Wall Street. Versus Bay Street. Bay Street is what we call the sort of the the financial world, investment banking world of Canada. I think that's largely corrected itself now or caught up now. But it always amazed me that Wall Street took this very, at least as it related to certain uh, minority, very much more meritocratic approach to things whereby they said, hey, man, if you can make money for the firm, I don't care what your last name is. I don't care what you look like.
2: I want to understand more about your field. In tech, in other fields, meritocracy does exist, but at the same time, representation is an issue. What is it like on Wall Street? I mean, yes, it is. If you can make money for the firm, I don't care where you're from. But typically, don't you hire out of certain schools that have certain representations? Like, what are What are the issues in in the investment banking field
1: yeah I think we've seen a migration right the in- investment banks have at least historically and I, I've run my own firm for 10 years so I, do you call that Wall Street it's hardly I mean but I did work at Salmon Brothers which became Salmon Smith Barney and Citigroup so a major Wall Street firm for 12 years and they largely recruit on the Ivy leagues and the very sort of exclusive campuses so I think you you tend to get a you're gonna get a certain demographic associated there that said, and I think the consideration set has migrated i mean historically, you wanted people we always noted in our in our class that you would have a range of people from sort of rich kids of, of and in particular from foreign nations, so the daughter of the head of you know a major bank in Spain, I remember was in our our associate class. you had a number of those type of folks because their family ties made it such that they were actually could deliver more for the firm because of their connections. But that's a sort of like a dying aspect of, of it. Frequently what you'll see now, in particular amongst the more junior the analysts and, and, and associate ranks is you'll see a tremendous percentage. In fact, I don't know, I think it's flipped. I think I think the minority is now the majority where they're hiring it's a combination of Asian and Indian. Basically anybody with the highest marks out of, out of these these top schools i look back at my business school in canada and it is now a majority minority because because of the purely meritocratic mark system. That, I mean, it doesn't matter. In Canada, you can't contribute to a university or hardly. So it's not as though you can buy your kid an entry point into a school. They're just taking the people with the best marks and, and the people with the best marks increasingly are minorities. And we've seen that translate into into Wall Street. So I don't know about the senior ranks, but I know in the junior ranks that they're absolutely hiring a tremendous number of minorities. I don't know how well that translates to African-American. Yeah.
0: Can I, guess, can I tell you guys a funny story? So when I started business school, it was orientation and we were all lined up to probably get paperwork or something like that. And I looked at the long line of people and I think we were, we were in alphabetical order. And so I'm Sharon Lee, I was, and Lee Leibowitz was standing in front of me. I'll never forget this. And so Lee Leibowitz, blonde hair, Jewish guy from New Jersey, love him, hope he's doing well and listening. And we were standing in line, and I was one of maybe 10 women out of a line of 120 students. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he's like, so how are you feeling? And I was like, I feel like I'm totally in the minority from a gender perspective. And he looked right back at me, and he goes, me too, me too. Because <laughs> He was one of the few Caucasian people. It was all... It was all racial. It was usually Indian or Asian or anything like that, standing in line, waiting to like kind of register for class. And we just both had a laugh. And that was our moment of kind of getting to know each other for that first time. So definitely, Terry, I hear you on that.
2: Terry, I kind of hate to put you on the spot, but I'm, I'm just, again, this is genuine curiosity of kind of where you're coming from and the seat you sit in. The world's kind of sideways right now. There's a lot of, as you said, strife. And everyone's trying to figure out what do I do, right? My friend Carl, a diversity guy at P&G, said on the show, if all you're saying is I'm not part of the problem, then I guarantee you're part of the problem. Those are kind of his words, I'm sure right. quoted from some book he read. And so I'm personally trying to figure out what I'm going to do. Sharon's doing the same. What does someone like you do? Or what does someone like you, or and again, it's not just about you, but if the entire audience of this podcast were investment bankers. Mm -hmm. And this is what I love about you, Terry, is you speak your mind, you have opinions, right? And you're willing (laughs) to share them. If you were standing in front of an audience of investment bankers, what would you tell them to do right now?
1: Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I too am struggling with what is the appropriate response action i mean i've been doing some low hanging fruit supporting causes whether it's in social posts contributing money to to causes and that's all fine that's all well and good but i'm i'm struggling with messaging because what do i and i'm trying and i'm and i'm watching other people with their messaging and some of it feels a little I worry about was this going to be virtue signaling or what can I do and and by the way words are kind of hollow so I want to get an action right cuz I kind of feel like this sort of is so fundamental and so deserving of a broad support cuz this is how this thing we turn the tides right i mean 250 years i mean i can't believe i saw someone yesterday deny uh, it was a, someone in the Trump administration no, no no surprise deny that there's structural racism let's just start there anybody denying <laughs> that there's structural i mean it's so freaking obvious so yeah i'm trying to figure out what the what the right messaging is that a is sort of beyond messaging actions that are sustained that are hopefully valuable and supportive, such that we get a broad sense of sort of traction and really sustainability to this recognition and hopefully rectification of what we've had for forever, right? Structurally. I know I can't do it vis-a-vis, I mean, some companies have come out and said, well, we're establishing a I mean, we're 11 people at Loma. So it's not as though, I mean, we have African-American, we have had Asians, we've had every minority but if I have a policy, that's sort of silly that 11 people, you can't really apply a percentage. But yeah. I'm trying to figure out that, yes, we can come out with supportive statements. I have an approach towards these issues, which often is, is different than others, in the sense that I'm a big believer that just let meritocracy and action speak louder than words. So I'll give you an example. We have, as Sharon, you expressed, a problem in, in uh, certainly in tech, it's in banking, it's in business in general, of an underrepresentation of, of women. And a couple of years ago, we were formulating, and by the way, in the sector's which I focus on media and marketing, it's highly pronounced the sort of 93 to 7% delta in between male, female. And I have a conference where we populate the speakers. It's, it's the attendance is largely CEOs. So if I have a CEO only conference, it is near impossible to get the sufficient amount of sort of female representation in the panels. And yet we feel we we have to. So at the time there was many of these conferences were populating panels where women would come up and talk about issues for women in tech. And I thought nah that doesn't feel productive. What we did instead was we had a panel of venture capitalists talking about trends in the sector. And so I needed to populate it with venture capitalists who are active in the sector, making investments that were thoughtful, well-spoken, intelligent, that would provide good insights in this panel. I populated it with entirely female venture capitalists, including a female moderator. So it was an all-woman panel. And I talked to them in advance and I said, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do, do whatever you want to do. But the rationale for this was to have you talk about the substantive issues of venture capital, as opposed to a conversation about gender and and how it impacts your your life and work. And I think that will speak volumes. And show show not not, tell.
2: Show not tell. Show
1: not tell. And so they got up and for 25, 30 minutes, and it was fascinating. It was great. And so many people came up to me afterwards and said, I saw what you did there that spoke volumes because just let their expertise and their skills speak, speak for themselves. And I think that's my perspective of how do you get people to change their minds on big issues, demonstrate that what we're saying is right. In other words, don't say, Hey, you should be more equal. You should provide, no, show them that in fact, it's in their best interest to do so. I like like that. that
0: Yeah. I think, yeah, I just really appreciate that because it's it's show, not tell. And it's, it's just show. It's like, this is who we're putting up there to have this conversation.
1: Yeah. And, and we're putting up because they're the most qualified. Right. They, they don't talk to me about their gender. I don't care about their gender. It's yeah. irrelevant. I want the best people. We hire people and, you know, we're not a big firm, so we don't do that much hiring, but we hire people. We just want the best people. Yeah. I could care less what they look like. So let's go back a
0: little bit. I'm just curious to know how you got to where you were. You started off being able to hustle
1: change out of people's
0: pockets. At a young age. <laughs> <laughs> but what made you choose this career trajectory and sort of what do you love about it?
1: Well, I was an entrepreneur, not just, not just doing people's change, but right. <laughs> I was an entrepreneur from early days. So, so I started my first business at the age of nine, paper route, and I basically a hustler, did all kinds of things to, to sort of, you know, make money. So I, I had that sort of entrepreneurial self-starter perspective. And yet when I sort of analyzed it in my teens, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do I thought, well, if I could be a principal, that's where I could sort of make the most impact. And yet here I was decidedly middle class. So I didn't have any capital. I didn't have any sort of network, rich kid network to rely on or anything like that. And so I said, well, if I can't start as a principal, how do I get there the fastest? Because the notions of sort of, you know, joining someone as a low-level manager and working my way up such that in, whatever, 20 years, I have a white picket fence and live in the suburbs and be a vice president. I just, that wasn't going to work for me either. I'm too impatient. And so I concluded that investment banking would give me sort of access to senior people at companies working on important issues. And basically it was the profession that I felt I could do because I, I love math and very interested in finance and yet would sort of have the steepest learning curve. And so I did that for for some period of time. I spent one year as a CFO of a company. I took them public in the year 2000, sort of interesting timing, but ultimately came back to banking because I was doing banking at a big firm and I felt like I was kind of running, my my learning curve was waning, and I can't stand that feeling. And then just the big bank bureaucracy just sort of got to me. But I, I ended up going back to banking, albeit in a different context with smaller firms, far more entrepreneurial, and ultimately, 10 years ago, launching Luma as almost a way to marry all my passions and interests, right? My inherent sort of entrepreneurial streak was satisfied by launching and, and running my own firm. And yet I, I love what I do in terms of intermediating deals because it involves so many aspects that I, I like from, from finance to psychology to storytelling. When I'm trying to intermediate a deal where I want a buyer to pay a large price for a technology, I believe, is appropriate uh, for them. There is a lot of sector knowledge and then applying a narrative to it in order to conclude your your business properly. So that was yet another aspect that I felt like I could uh, bring to play. And then finally, the the comedy. I mean, I was kind of stifled at bigger firms in terms of how much I could bring that into my day job. But at Luma, I can put out a parody video and, and that can be, you know, <laughs> supportive of the marketing efforts with no one, no one to say no to me. So I don't know.
2: You're the only guy who's mastered effectively putting sound effects in PowerPoint. So I'll, I will give you that. <laughs> That's so amazing.
0: So Terry, you said something kind of earlier on in your story that I, it actually kind of struck me. So you said something along the lines of how, you knew that you didn't want to start off at a company working at the low level and then getting promoted to manager and working your way up in that way. You kind of you knew that you wanted to start at the top. And as somebody who's a child of immigrant parents, that is mind-blowing to me because a lot of what I was kind of taught growing up was literally that it was go to a good school, get really good grades, get hired by a bigger company, start at the bottom and work your way to the top. So what do you think it was about your childhood? Maybe it was what your parents were doing professionally or just anything that you kind of gleaned from your childhood that gave you
1: that point of view. So just a point of clarification, my dad's side, it was my great-grandfather that came over in 1896, and on my mother's side, and it ranging from the late 1600s through the late 1700s. So it's like, it's multiple generations in, but I will tell you that this notion of sort of... The impatience aspect of it not wanting to sort of gradually work my way up, I think was in part what I observed from from my my father's career. my My dad was a super smart kid who was head of the household from age twelve on his died rather young, and so he had to support the family and go to school, got top marks, engineer Harvard Business School. And then had a, had a career in business, but but a career where, if I could be honest, probably sub-optimized what he could have done. He was really good at his day job. He just wasn't really good at necessarily at his own sort of career management and promotion. So his sort of career started fine, but then sort of ended sort of on a, on a whimper. And I sort of looked at that and said, wait, no, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that. I'd rather have a higher risk factor to sort of go big earlier. And and look, I don't think I ever thought I wanted to start at the top, but certainly start at a level that would accelerate me to sort of doing the things that I felt I, I wanted to do so, sooner rather than later. I just didn't have, wasn't born with a big attention span and and I, I never acquired one. Got it. Thank you.
2: So Terry, I keep coming back to this because I'm just confused and that's why I'm talking. <laughs> I'm literally using this podcast to just talk to people who I think are doing interesting things and sometimes smarter than me in different things. Look, you've said it, I've said it, we all kind of believe it, like the, the leaders that we have right now aren't leading <laughs> very well or they're, or they're telegraphing some of the wrong behaviors and decisions. And I see you as a leader in the field. While your firm isn't the biggest, it makes really good, interesting, salient points that convinces people. So as someone who's good at convincing people and, and storytelling, if you had an audience with some of our leaders right now, mm-hmm. how would you how would you convince them to try something different or to to show them that he, there is an issue? Like, how do you put the Terry charm on our leaders? Because I I want to know because I want to do that right now.
1: Yeah, I hear you. We're we're in desperate need of sort of like a, a better perspective from the top. Hopefully, November third can't come soon enough, and and that brings about some improvement. Yeah, and actually, that's why this notion. When you ask the question, you know, what what is wh- how am I going to respond to this? I feel like I kind of you're right. It's not this Luma is not going to make a difference in terms of its own company, even though we have somewhat of a, a diverse relative to our numbers. I suppose pretty high percentage of diversity, but yeah, I think the messaging is, is important, and that's what I, that's what I want to get right. And I've been watching what what others have done. I think. A lot of people fall into the category of they would agree with the sentiments around equality and the like, but maybe haven't. I know my experience is I've been doing a lot of listening of late to folks on this on this issue. I have spoken with many of my African-American friends to say, Hey what like what's going on and they're all inundated right now uh, including clients they're all inundated to do these podcasts because because it's now is, Obviously, is, yeah. is the moment but I find it instructive and educational to get their perspectives it it blows me away that they all have these experiences of sort of unwarranted police stops and and all this kind of stuff which is horrifying and it's I suppose one could have assumed that that was the case broadly speaking but it's not a topic that one normally Has with their clients, so so that's been eye opening. That these kids, many of which went to university and and have these positions of leadership, and yet it's no different, right? It's no different to the to the cop on the street. They were driving while black, and therefore probably warranted more pullovers. That's been eye opening to me. But back to your question, because I'm not trying to duck it here, is messaging is I think our voices do need to be heard. I think people who have a voice who have a following that are known for unfiltered, sort of objectively credible perspectives on business. Look, I have need to speak up. And it's an interesting issue. In Starting in 2000, I guess late 15 and well into the Trump presidency, I have at my business functions, at these sort of CEO conferences, yeah, yeah. Been, been vocal about Anti, you know, Trump administration—that this is a problem. Pointing out these issues, and people have come up to me and said, "Dude, wh- what are you doing?" And address this, and I said, "Look, I have in my history never mixed politics with with business, and I don't believe I'm doing that now. In the sense that, look, this isn't, I believe, a question of right versus left. It's right versus wrong." I believe this is objectively wrong. What is taking place in this country? I think it's a danger to our democracy. I think it's ethically reprehensible. This isn't a function of Republicans versus Democrats on all issues. I agree with the Democrats. I mean, I'm a registered independent. I voted both ways. I, I don't recognize the Republican party anymore. They, I think in the past, they used to be, have reasonable perspectives but now it seems like they took a right turn at Albuquerque and they took multiple right turns and now it's unrecognizable. So probably, I mean, it's unquestionably I would vote Democratic right now, given the two-party choice. But I've stood up and not only spoken about these issues, because I'm a student of history and let me tell you something, this it's rhyming with very, very bad aspects that we've seen in the past. And so I've been vocal about that and I've explained, here's why I'm being vocal about it. This isn't politics. I don't care about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I care about right versus wrong. And this is so blatantly obvious that I feel a duty to express myself. And so I would put the sort of racial tension moment of clarity that's needed right now, per your question. I put this in the same camp. This is just wrong, right? I mean, the level of discrimination and the antipathy with which we've largely sort of non-responded to this growing problem, or it's been a consistent problem, but there's been these touch points recently that have exacerbated it that I think it warrants speaking out. and, And I will be speaking out. Like this is not an issue you can just sweep under the table or just support quietly. I believe one does have to say something. I still struggle with trying to figure out what that is. And often that's a function of timing. So if you come out in the week of the protests, I mean, I have come out and on social media and, and supported the protest, supported the, the whole Black Lives Matter issue, but you don't want to seem rote. You don't want to seem yeah, like you're yeah. signaling. So I'm actually thinking I'm not worried about coming out immediately with a message. I am, want to make sure I get it right and that it's sustainable and that it makes an impact.
2: Well, Terry, what I love is one—you've always had a voice and always had a platform. I think a lot of us in the quote-unquote industry respect that, and I say quote-unquote because I don't even know how to define the industry. Some days, (laughs) yeah, but it's all amorphous. But something you said at the very top is—you've kind of earned that authenticity because you've always said what's on your mind. So I think when someone like you says something, people are like, "Yeah, Terry's saying what's on his mind. Terry, Terry doesn't hold back. Terry's filtered." And so the other thing I respect about what you just said is. You're going to be thoughtful and really intentional about what you say because you want to get it right. The nice thing is you get a lot more outbats than some do because people always want to hear what you have to say. And that, that's why I really wanted you on the show. So just thanks for like caring. <laughs> I think that's, that matters and, and and continue to be honest. And I really love that quote of it's not right versus left. It's right versus wrong. That's really good. And I want a parking lot later. I have an idea I want to throw at you related to all this, but we're almost out of time. And we want to switch to something called speed round.
1: You ready for that, Terry? Absolutely. All right. Sharon, why don't you go first? Okay.
0: What's one thing about you that nobody expects?
1: I have a tendency to tear up watching movies on airplanes. I don't know what it is about flying, about altitude, but I'm way more emotional watching movies on airplanes. I think it's a function of context. I'm flying back from, usually I'll watch them on the way back from the West Coast after the meeting, so I'm a little bit letting off steam, but there's something about altitude. It's sort of oddly not embarrassing, but it's just kind of funny. I sit there with tear up. I'm like, really? Really? This never happens when I'm watching a movie at home.
2: I have a funny story about that, Terry. So when my daughter was born, she's four now, but like when she was born, I took a few months off from the startup world. And when I was starting to kind of enter back in, I got an interview with a really big, hot, I won't say their name, tech company out west. They did all the interviews in New York. They're like, you got to come out to New York. So I did the whole 24-hour red eye thing. And I just felt so guilty because my, my baby girl's at home. And I watch The Departed on the flight. And I am bawling, <laughs> not to ruin the movie, but when something happens to Leo's kid, I'm like, I abandoned my kid. What am I doing? So I hear on crying on planes. And that's, that's a related question to the next one. Can you recommend a book or a movie with characters that you really relate
1: to? Well, let's see. The depictions of Wall Street, I've always cringed at every movie that comes out about Wall Street, in particular about investment bankers, gets it wrong, right? For, first of all, most movies don't actually depict the job of an investment banker. They depict the job of a trader or a broker. So the famous movies, Wall Street and all these, that no one has, very few movies have ever actually captured in a realistic fashion what an investment banker does. It's, the one that has, oddly, is a Working Girl, It's a comedy, right? And Harrison Ford plays not only an investment banker, but an investment banker pursuing a deal in the media space, a radio broadcast merger, which I did a lot of in the 90s. And in that movie, that's actually the move that accurately depicts sort of what an investment banker does pretty much. Whereas Wolf of Wall Street, all these other ones, I'm like, no, 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 none of them get it right. None of them accurately portray it. So there you go. Working Girl. That's great. Uh, I love that movie. <laughs> What's your favorite
0: mom dish?
1: Lasagna. My mom is a great cook, but she made a lasagna growing up that was epically world famous. She would she would send me back to New York. She would bake up a bunch of trays, even after I moved out of the house, and, and uh, package them all up and freeze them. And I would bring those to New York. Hilarious when you're coming into immigration and you have that form that you have to check off saying, are you bringing in food and all this kind of stuff? And here I am. I've got a whole suitcase that's basically, if they x-rayed it, they would have thought these were packages of cocaine or something, but it was (laughs) frozen lasagna from mom. Oh, I love it. What's
2: your least favorite food, Terry?
1: You know, I kind of like a lot of foods and my palate has gotten much healthier after getting married because my wife is a nutrition expert. And as improved my, but let's see. Well, tofu. I mean, it's basically, it's basically tasteless.
2: Yeah. It's like
1: jelly. Yeah. I'm oh. with you there, man. Who is someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast? Barack Obama. Let's see. If, if I had to pick top three, Christopher Hitchens, if I could, if I could bring him back, because that's who I miss right now with what we're going through. I want Christopher Hitchens take. I don't, didn't always agree with it. But man, that's one amazing noggin that he's got there. And he's contrarian. And the way he thinks about things and process them in a very sort of orthogonal way, I always found fascinating. I have gone back and watched every single YouTube interview with Christopher and, and read his books. I wish I could... I wish he was here today to talk to him about what's going on in America. I think it would be fascinating.
2: Yeah, I'd love, if you could offline, send me what your favorite YouTube video is. I'd love to put it in the show notes because I don't know enough about him other than a few quotes that I've seen here and there. Yep. Last question, Terry, what does being a model minority mean to you?
1: I think it's just a function of trying to, a lot of people would, would agree with notions of Equality and and inclusion and and diversity—it's then how it manifests itself. And I I think being a model minority, whether you're a sort of a visible minority or whether you're white, it sort of doesn't matter. Is we should all strive for the greatest amount of sort of level playing field, so that we can so, so this notion of meritocracy that we all will head nod to we can actually make make a reality because i think i think that starts with acknowledgement that does not exist today and an acknowledgement that there are structural issues that need to be addressed in order to but but wouldn't it be great if we could have a world where it was purely meritocratic, where the best would rise regardless of all aspects, where it doesn't matter. And I think being a model minority is someone who helps strive to make that happen.
2: That's great, Terry. This has been just a lot of fun. I've I've always been a fan of yours and I love just getting into it on, frankly, a topic that isn't an industry one, right? It's it's something that's kind of permeating through everything. So just thanks for being honest and just on this podcast, but also just continue to be honest and sharing your voice outside. I really appreciate it. man.
1: Thank you so much. Well, great to be with you, both Raman and Sharon.
0: And that's our show.
2: Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
0: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three.
2: Want to learn more? or got something to share. Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom at modmypod.com.
0: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
2: Now, here's a preview of our next episode. White people realizing that Black people experience racism on a daily basis. Oh my God, like me having to realize how much I have swallowed and pushed down. I can't just do that anymore because it has taken such a toll on my health, mentally and physically. I used to just have to be perfect. I give myself no leeway ever. I've had so many sicknesses from stress and running myself into the ground and not thinking that I was good enough or pretty enough, all the not enoughs. And now I'm finally at a place where I'm like, you're good enough. It's a daily practice still, but yeah. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
0: We'll talk to you soon.
2: Anatomy of an ad.
0: Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect.